What's up, everybody? This is Dr. Adam Riddy, and welcome to the next episode of the One Thing Podcast. I'm excited to speak with Dr. Jeffrey Novak, who is a molecular biochemist out of Pacific Northwest University in Yakima, Washington. We're going to be speaking about primarily pathways of inflammation, pathways that are associated with chronic disease. So we're speaking about autophagy, NERF2, mTOR. These are some of the hot topics in medicine right now. They are involved with an understanding of some of the processes that regulate or contribute to chronic inflammatory diseases. So you've heard a lot about fasting and you've heard a lot about ketogenic diets. You've heard about the importance of regulating inflammation in the body. Well, this goes down to the molecular cell level of these concepts and tries to unpack and understand why potentially certain nutritional approaches can help prevent or regulate or slow down neurodegenerative diseases and other chronic inflammatory diseases. It just so happens that Dr. Novak was my pharmacology professor at Bastyr University. A number of naturopathic doctors, a whole generation of naturopathic doctors benefited from having us learn from him. He had a degree in pharmacology from the University of Washington and ended up on the Bastyr campus in the early 90s. Um, much to our benefit, he taught us a lot about drugs and we learned a lot about pharmaceuticals and how they play a role in naturopathic medicine. And also he taught us a lot about the mechanisms of plants and phytochemicals and how they can influence a number of pathways that can regulate disease. And so he's, he was a true gem in our education. Now he's out at helping um, DO students at Pacific Northwest University learn. In this episode, we go into a lot of different aspects. We probably could have done a whole seminar on these topics, but I hope this at least gives some intro. I write a lot about these topics and we'll continue to blog about them. But today we're going to be discussing autophagy, NERF2, mTOR. Listen in. I hope you enjoy it. Um, from a naturopathic perspective, we go into the phytochemical aspects of plants, meaning when you go to the molecular level of certain fruits, vegetables, nuts, and seeds, what are some of the ingredients of those plants that may help prevent disease? I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for tuning in. Okay. Well, Dr. Novak, it's, it's great to reconnect with you. Welcome to One Thing Podcast. Um, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I think the last time... I saw you before I graduated was on potentially on the basketball court at Bastyr, which was a, a great diversion from our intense studies to go down there and uh, catch an elbow or something from you <laughs> and then go back up and, and uh, get into Zen mode on the Bastyr campus. Hope I had parted more than just an elbow. <laughs> yeah. You had, you're really good with, I remember you were really good at passing the ball and, you know, going in and getting some really key rebounds. We used to play with um, a good group of people, Dr. Pizzorno, the founder of Bastyr, and then one of our, our great longtime clinical professors and um, didactic professors, Dr. Conroy. Yep. It was good times. Definitely. I think 
that pulled me through medical school and in a lot of ways. So, um, well, we, uh, we've been catching up a little bit before the episode started and, you know, I, I was sharing with you that I've been researching a lot just for my patients and for my own health, um, this, these concepts of autophagy and, um, what that means um, for health. And this has been a big area of study. Um, I think really became well-known um, around 2016, got a lot of publicity. Um, what, um, maybe we could just kind of start off with like, what brought you to the interest of autophagy? And before I say that, I, I just want to say that you were one of the first people that I ever learned about how plants um, interact with the immune system from a mechanistic basis. And so I know you've been interested in natural products inter, inter, um, interacting with the immune system for a long time, but specifically what launched you into the field of autophagy, mTOR, NERF2, and maybe um, you kind of we could start with that. Well, interestingly, when I first learned about autophagy, it was in school and Autophagy simply means autophagy or self-eating. And that was all we knew about the pathway at the time was that when cells are starved, they have a self-preservation mechanism whereby they start to reuse or recycle their components. For instance, they take their own proteins and break them down into amino acids. So old and uh, misfolded proteins can be uh, tagged, labeled, broken down into amino acids and made into new proteins when there's an energy deficiency. Um, so that was about all I knew about autophagy at the time, but it turns out it's a lot more important. And what happened to me was a colleague of mine asked me to write a paper two or three years ago on the drug rapamycin. And I happened to I used to work on the drug rapamycin, so that's how my connection came to this. And rapamycin has an effect on autophagy. And when I started to write this paper on rapamycin and autophagy, uh, what happened was that I ended up writing a different paper, which was I proposed a unified theory for neurodegenerative disease, which autophagy played a major role in. Right, and, and so if you could talk a little bit about a little bit further about the autophagy as far as when it's functioning in in a health state and maybe compare it to when it's not well functioning well let me start with the kind of scientific story here a little bit which is the drug rapamycin actually started a lot of this whole autophagy um, research and interest and the reason is that low-dose but not high-dose rapamycin is the only pharmacological agent that has ever been shown to increase lifespan across a whole variety of species, everything from C. elegant worms all the way up through mammals. Um, and so this is the only thing that's been shown to do this as a drug. But what else has been shown to increase lifespan and interestingly, also make healthier animals. It's not just they live longer. So sometimes you can get a drug that'll have like have C. elegans, for instance, live longer, but they won't move well. In this case, they live longer and they move well. They acted like they were young. 
And so the only other thing that's been shown to do that is nutrient deprivation or partial starvation. Mm -hmm. um, and the other interesting aspect to this for both of these, if you starve something for too long, they actually get worse and die. If you give too high a dose of rapamycin, they actually get worse and die. But if you give a low dose or you partially starve, then the organism lives longer and is healthier. And so that is kind of the where my interest was initially sparked. Okay. So, yeah, let's talk about mTOR because that's actually named after this medication, right? This pathway mTOR, which is involved with autophagy. Can you sort of introduce us to mTOR and tell us kind of what it does? So mTOR, its name is um, molecular target of rapamycin. So that's why it's called mTOR. So it's actually the target of rapamycin. Um, and it's a critical uh, enzyme in a pathway uh, for this. And so rapamycin is an inhibitor of mTOR, and inhibition of mTOR allows um, for the autophagy pathway to be turned on. So mTOR itself is an inhibitor of autophagy, autophagy. So if you inhibit mTOR, you're now turning on autophagy. And it turns out that autophagy is a very complicated process, and there's not just one autophagy, there are a number of autophagies. But the, the bottom line is that uh, at least for rapamycin, by inhibiting this mTOR pathway, it turns on autophagy. And the other piece here to keep in mind is that this pathway is also turned on by low energy, by nutrient deprivation, by partial fasting. So the things that turn on autophagy are uh, low insulin, high NAD plus, low ATP compared to high AMP. This turns on a kinase called AMP kinase, which is turned on and activated when energy levels are low. So the it's kind of a defense mechanism of cells, mm -hmm. but it, it's also a critical pathway to clear out the junk in the pathway, so to speak. So all of our cells, especially our long-lived cells, like neurons, accumulate uh, damaged proteins, protein aggregates. And in addition to just proteins, organelles are also targeted to lysosomes for destruction. And in particular, the critical organelle that needs to be targeted when it's dysfunctional is mitochondria. So dysfunctional mitochondria end up if they are not targeted to lysosomes through the autophagy pathway, they, they stick around and they produce a lot of reactive oxygen species that targets, that damages more protein DNA and other substances. This leads to more protein aggregates in the cell. And that's the hallmark of a lot of neurodegenerative disease, for instance, is okay. this protein aggregate. Yeah. So, you know, in your, in the paper that you referred to, um, you talked about this pathway being um, linked to neurodegenerative neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease. Um, can you talk about the difference between how these path, this pathway, the mTOR pathway um, plays out in um, Alzheimer's disease compared to Parkinson's disease and if, if there is a difference or if it's, if it's similar? Well, there are similarities in both. And another piece of evidence that kind of points towards autophagy being important 
is, um, is the emerging genetic evidence, particularly in Parkinson's disease. So there are a number of rare genetic defects that cause a very early onset Parkinson's disease. And people could not figure out why that was initially. Um, but we now know that a couple of these genes called Parkin and Pink that cause very early onset Parkinson's disease, uh, these alter autophagy and decrease the amount of autophagy and they're actually genes involved in autophagy. So here's a direct link between not enough autophagy and very early onset Parkinson's. And then um, studies in mice and a couple of other studies in, for Alzheimer's have also clearly shown this link between lack of autophagy and Alzheimer's progression in mice, for instance. So there's a, an, an accumulating amount of evidence that indicates that a lack of autophagy leads to destruction of neurons, either in Parkinson's or Alzheimer's. That's really interesting because, you know, both those diseases are linked to accumulation of certain proteins, right, in the cells. Yeah, so there's, for Parkinson's, it's alpha-synuclein protein aggregates that the cell can't get rid of. And and in Alzheimer's disease, uh, in addition to the A-beta that accumulates on the outside, there's also an accumulation of tau, hyperphosphorylated tau on the inside of the cells. So for both those diseases, there's an accumulation of protein that the cell doesn't get rid of. And that the, the, there's a well-known uh, misfolded and protein aggregate pathway that triggers apoptosis and cell death in those cells. So okay. those neurons will be dying because they can't get rid of the junk inside. I equate it kind of to uh, a, a hoarder's house where it becomes so filled with junk that the cell can't get rid of it and can't function appropriately if they're not doing autophagy optimally. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so one of the things I think that throws off people with this subject, and I know I've gone back and forth with various colleagues about mTOR, is that you know there, there's a number of situations where we've actually are seeing where stimulating mTOR might be helpful. Can you talk about um, the difference between inhibition of mTOR versus um, activation? So the, 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 the key point here is that you can also, for autophagy in general, is that if you have too much autophagy, the cell's going to go through and kill itself. It's going to chew everything up. So there's an optimal amount of autophagy. And uh, mTOR is a key regulatory point. And partial inhibition of this mTOR pathway, either by low-dose drugs, so ra that's rapamycin, or by a large number of, and I've actually done the research and I have charts on this, a large number of foods have specific constituents that can inhibit autophagy. And we think that low doses of these whole food constituents um, are just as useful as, as low-dose rapamycin drug. That is, short periods of pulses of inhibition all the t uh, of mTOR all the time are going to stimulate autophagy partially because you don't want to stimulate too much. And that's the interesting thing about the autophagy pathway, but also a number of other pathways that I've been looking at recently, which is that when you put in a drug to 
completely turn on or turn off the, the critical pathway, you get deleterious results. But if you put in short half-life foods, um, you enhance that pathway optimally. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because I'm reading a book by Dr. Neil Nathan right now who wrote this book called Toxic. Um, he's a MD who's ventured into um, chronic illness. And he talks about this concept that you're alluding to is having both a winter state in the body and a summer state. So you need um, summer would be more of stimulating mTOR and winter would be more like inhibiting it and the body actually needs processes to kind of balance the two. Or short pulses. Of, the same thing goes with, um, with partial fasting. If you fast too long, then you run into nutrient deficits, the cells start to die on their own. But partial fasting stimulates a lot of these same pathways. Partial fasting inhibits mTOR. Mm -hmm. That's that's so, so is that partial meaning like 13 hours a day or partial meaning like a 24-hour water fast once a week? What, what's your take on that? So the studies have mostly been done on shorter fasts. So one or two day fasts or 16 eights or the, the studies, the cellular studies are a little different and the animal studies are a little different. But the bottom line is that short fasts push AMPK and, and that's going to turn off mTOR and that's going to turn on autophagy. So the bottom line is that you, you can do longer fasts. At some point they become deleterious. It's not clear when. And, it, 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 and for these fasts, uh, water is is not necessary for the fast. That is, a person can take water the whole time. It's a question of nutrients. And so what determines whether you're going to turn this on? Well, insulin. So as long as you keep insulin low and then energy state in the cell, so low ATP, high NAD+. And if those critical factors are present, then you turn on autophagy. But not only do you turn on autophagy, you turn on a number of other factors too. You turn on um, the sirtuin pathway and a couple of other pathways that um, I've been trying to categorize and look at for a while on another paper that I'll Those do later. More longevity pathways, right? Well, they're more sirtuin is is a longevity pathway. It involves um, enhancing telomere length in cells, so that's going to increase. Uh, cell longevity, but sirtuin does more than that. And it turns out that a lot of these pathways interact with one another. So sirtuin can also turn on autophagy, for instance. And autophagy likewise can turn on the sirtuin pathway a little bit. So there's reciprocal interactions and there's a complicated dance of these pathways together. So let's go a little further um, to NERF2 and how that connects with what we've talked about so far. And maybe just kind of tell our audience what NERF2 is. So NRF2 is a transcriptional activator, meaning that it's kind of a key control point that turns on an entire set of genes. And what's particularly interesting about NRF2, and I've been interested in NRF2 for a while, I've been collecting research articles on NRF2 for the last five or 10 years. Um, in addition to NF-kappa-B, that's my other area of interest. But um, for NRF2, it, the set of genes it turns on are the cell's entire um, protective response against oxidative damage. So 
there's a whole there are whole sets of genes turned on by NRF2, everything from glutathione synthesis to glutathione as transferase, um, even other phase two enzymes. And so NRF2 is like autophagy, a pathway that allows cells to be protected from oxidative damage. The really interesting and critical part about this that I think most people don't understand or think about is that NRF2 is actually activated by reactive oxygen species. It has mm. a sense of protein that's connected to it all the time called KEEP. And if KEEP does not um, physically separate from NRF2, it targets NRF2 for ubiquitination and degradation, which of course is part of the autophagy pathway. So um, normally under low oxidative stress, NRF2 is not activated. When there's activated, when there's um, ox oxidative stress inside the cell, keep acts as a sensor. It's got five critical cysteine residues on it that can, that can be oxidized and so when KEEP is oxidized, it separates from NRF2 and allows NRF2 to translocate to the nucleus and turn on this entire set of cell protective pathways. Mm. And I think one thing we've been mistaken about, about antioxidants, is that many antioxidants turn out to turn on NR the NRF2 pathway also. And mm -hmm. the antioxidants that also that don't also turn on NRF2 may not be as or nearly as effective. They may only work outside the cell as uh, and not as well inside cells. And so that's a critical piece here. Vitamin E is a classic example of this. Everybody expected when people took more vitamin E that it would be protective for a lot of different diseases and prevent cancer as an antioxidant. However, vitamin E does not activate NRF2. And so in a number of studies, um, in a prostate cancer study that was pretty large and a couple of other studies, people given vitamin E actually had an increased risk of prostate cancer rather than a decrease. And people mm. could not figure that out for a long time. And the question is why? Vitamin E is one of the strongest antioxidants. It can take a number of resonant states um, and it's a really strong antioxidant, but it doesn't activate the antioxidant system inside cells. And that's a critical piece that it's missing. Mm -hmm. And I think we've been mistaken a little bit about antioxidants. Antioxidants are important, but many of them are not only antioxidants outside the cell, but also inside the cell, because many of them also activate NRF2. And that's one of the reasons, I think, that trying to separate out some specific antioxidants out of foods does not, has not been nearly as successful as just eating those whole foods and getting those combination of uh, components that'll that'll turn on NRF2 and have other effects. Right. That makes sense. So, um, so what happens if like NRF2 is knocked out of the system? Well, uh, so there are NRF2 knockouts. Um, and one other, other interesting aspect of this too is there are some experimental drugs in a number of systems where you can, you can turn on NERF2, you can activate NERF2 at really high levels. 
that again can be somewhat deleterious. And then it turns out that some cancer cells turn on NRF2 as protection against anti-cancer drugs. Yeah. So, yeah. so there's some key examples here, again, where you want to turn it on at low amounts, um, similarly to autophagy, but you don't want to go too high. And that's where foods that have phytochemicals that affect NRF2, and there are many of them, uh, and many of them are also antioxidants. Um, so, so what's your favorite one? I know there's a bunch like, you know, quercetin and resveratrol and sulforaphane. What, what, where, and I know also some of the mushrooms might um, be involved, mushroom extracts or constituents. What's, where do you, where do you feel some of the stronger ones are? For NRF2? Yeah, for um, NRF2 or just some kind of overlap between NRF2 and mTOR. So, it's interesting that you mention that because the next paper I'm working on is theorizing kind of a whole new paradigm for why most of these whole foods and, 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 and in particular fruits, nuts, and seeds, um, because those specific foods were the foods that uh, the Institute for Health Metrics at the University of Washington, their Gates Foundation, they crunched really big numbers and a lot of really big studies. And what they came up for with was the foods, the diet is, diet is the number one factor for reducing both death and disability years from disease. And note that they don't just lose mortality. Uh, they also look at disability years from other disease. So for diabetes, disability years from the major, it's the, diabetes, for instance, is the major cause of blindness, the major cause of limb loss in the US. And so they looked at those other factors too, not just did somebody die, but what, you know, what disability years did they have? And when they did that, diet was number one. And of the dietary factors, what they found was the number one thing people could do by far was eat more fruits to prevent both death and disability. Mm. And that's particularly interesting because a lot of people would say, oh, vegetables or, or other things, but it, fruits were number one. Number mm. two were nuts and seeds. And number three was... Um, salt intake, but they said that was processed foods. So too much processed foods was number three, but it was far behind. As long as you ate lots of fruits, nuts, and seeds, those were the critical factors for this. Vegetables were further back, leafy green vegetables. Um, but that information struck me in particular. And so I wanted to address the question, why were fruits, nuts, and seeds, some vegetables, and I also did spices and herbs and looked at those and tried to make a huge chart of these. Why were these critical for health? What, what constituents did they have that were critical for health? And when I looked at the theories that were already out there for this in nutrition, um, the, the macronutrient theory didn't fit at all. Uh, nuts and seeds are really high in fats um, and uh, fruits are really high and are fairly high in carbohydrates and fructose. None of those were considered healthy. So I, the, mac, the macronutrient theory, I think, has been pretty much debunked on a lot of different levels. It doesn't, there are a number of different diets you can eat to, be, to get healthier values for cardiovascular risk and other things. So you can eat a low fat, you can eat a low carb. There are a lot of different ways to do this, or you can do partial fasting, any of those. So macronutrients, probably not the critical point. And then most people have considered, well, it's the vitamins and minerals. But in the last five or 10 years, there have been a large number of studies looking at long-term effects 
of vitamins and minerals, and they haven't been as beneficial as we thought they should be. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, there have been a couple meta-analysis now saying that unless somebody has a vitamin deficiency, in general, adding a multivitamin isn't helpful. Now, some people may argue, well, maybe these multivitamins they use weren't the best or whatever. But the bottom line is that in most cases, the, they haven't gotten the beneficial health effects we would expect. That they would, and the same health effects we know they get from eating a diet high in fruits and vegetables and other things. Everything from uh, extra virgin olive oil to whatever. And so I didn't think that the vitamins and minerals could account for that. So mm -hmm. the next theory that's most prevalent is it's the phyto phytochemicals that are present in the foods. And I agree with that. They're present in much higher amounts. Um, they have all kinds of health effects on their own for the most part. But uh, most people said that they, it was the phytochemicals acting as antioxidants. Well, I think this NRF2 effect tells us that most of these phytochemicals are not just acting as antioxidants. They're also acting on the NRF2 pathway. So the question I wanted to... So, go, go ahead. So is, is this what we would consider like dietary hormesis effect? Um, yeah, it's actually very similar to hormesis. The only, so I've looked at the hormesis papers and they typically involve a, so they, they typically postulate that small stressors uh, lead the body to be more resilient. And I think that's a similar kind of effect here, but I wouldn't say that these uh, phytonutrients are stressors. Instead, what I'm postulating is that these phytochemicals in our fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, spices, herbs, um, at low doses, uh, turn on or activate or inhibit a number of critical pathways in our cells that promote health. Everything from NF-kappa-B, which is the critical transcriptional activator for inflammation. So we have too much inflammation a lot of the times. But if you completely turn off NF-kappa-B, then the person's susceptible to infections. But low doses of these phytochemicals have an effect to, to shut off some of the chronic diseases to some extent, to shut off some of the feedback mechanisms for that. Okay. So our our bubbies and our grandmas of the future will be saying, eat your fruits and nuts, not eat your vegetables. Well, the veg well there are a number of vegetables that are good, there, that, are, that I looked at also that are good. They're just not as high on the list. And it may be because people don't eat as much of them, but the cruciferous vegetables in particular are pretty useful. And mm -hmm. so for this paper, I've actually made a chart of almost all the most common fruits, nuts, seeds, spices, uh, botanical plants, uh, some some fungals, uh, and also um, vegetables. So they're all in there. And the question is, when you eat these, can you eat them in combinations that will affect all these pathways at once? Because that gives you more of a synergistic effect. And a lot of these phytochemicals have very short half-lives. So you're giving a short pulse during the day when you're eating these uh, for these pathways, and that may be what you need to optimally uh, enhance health. That's really interesting. So um, this brings together two really important worlds, which is, you know, sort of what we've always thought 
would be beneficial from like a plant-based diet. And now this world of watching, um, you know, calorie intake from a standpoint of in a healthy way, you know, I mean, the calorie intakes always been at the forefront of health and disease. And, but now looking at, you know, it's health benefits as far as periodic fasts and um, now bringing together this aspect of plants, it seems like we're merging two really important worlds. Um, and my, my takeaway from this is that what you're saying, if I'm hearing you right, is that in a whole food constituent, um, you're, let's take Nerf 2, for example, you may be pushing it enough to generate an anti-inflammatory reaction. So it's, it's almost like you need a little bit of a nudge to get the antioxidant effect from Nerf 2. Well, it, so it's Nerf 2 on its own is protective inside the cell, but if you have inflammation going on outside the cell, that inflammation can inhibit both autophagy and Nerf 2. So you have to, you have to hit all three of these together at least. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I'm arguing in this paper is that they're all interconnected. So that one of the problems with the, the failures in drug therapy for neurodegenerative disease is they're targeting only one of these. So they may target inflammation, but if they haven't targeted also autophagy, the cells are gonna die. That's gonna produce more protein aggregates that are released. This is gonna turn on M1 macrophages. This is gonna turn on more inflammation. And this ends up, uh, so you've turned off the inflammation, but now you're turning on more inflammation locally because of the autophagy. So you have to hit these pathways together to get maximal health. Mm. And so that, that's what I'm postulating here because they all interact. And if you have inflammation, you turn off NRF2, you turn off autophagy, you turn off sirtuin and others. And there's a couple other pathways which I haven't mentioned, um, which are more metabolic pathways. And these are the PPAR pathways. Um, and it turns out there's a lot of research out there that constituents in foods affect a number of these pathways. So I've actually, in this paper, putting together uh, charts on all the foods and which pathways they affect. Well, I look forward to that. When does that come out? And um, when Yeah, that's in preparation. So hopefully I'm going to finish it this summer. Um, oh, great. The, the other key here is, and I think you mentioned this, the synergy of partial fasting with eating a whole food diet. If you do the both of them together, partial fasting on its own is gonna stimulate some of these pathways. And I think it enhances the effect that you see when you eat a whole food diet. So if you do some partial fasting and keep insulin low and also uh, do a whole food diet here, you're, you're, you're hitting these pathways in a number of different ways and you should get more of a synergistic effect. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think that's the premise of like the fasting mimicking diet right now that's um, starting to, you know, get out there into clinical settings, um, which is um, you know, essentially like um, a plant-based diet um, that has elements of caloric restriction in it. Um, and to do this periodically, like quarterly for one week is sort of the kind of general thing of the fasting mimicking diet. Um, have you, have you um, followed that much? I follow that some, but to, so I'm, I'm, I'm a molecular and pathway person. So I think it gives us good results, but 
I'm still, for me, I want to see what molecular pathways are involved. So well in humans, but. um, So what would you, what would you want just sort of a take home message? What would you want like clinicians to do with this information that you're, you're diving into? Well, the, the chart in this paper is going to be, I think, extremely helpful for anybody who's uh, a dietitian or in nutrition or trying to clinically use nutrition because it, it documents which foods uh, affect which pathways. So you can combine foods in a way that'll do this. And there are some foods, so there's something called superfoods, which I've always hated that because the definition of that is not really... Uh, in my mind, robust at all. So a superfood is anything somebody wants to call something that has some beneficial health effects. But to me, a real superfood is a food that um, has, in addition to all these beneficial health effects, affects each of these critical pathways in cells and therefore should give the most beneficial effect. Mm -hmm. So it's more taking that the research and implementing it in dietary and nutrition recommendations and, um, you know, sort of using it in potentially preventative health settings, also chronic inflammatory diseases. For any of those, I think for the clinician, the idea is that you can combine partial fasting, you can combine a whole foods diet, and you can use these two together a little more specifically and clinically to promote health in general. And so Mm -hmm. you should be able to look at somebody's uh, cardiovascular outputs. So if you look at um, various tests, you you should be able to look at their cholesterol level. You should be able to look at their, um, their CRP level. You should be able to look at, um, a whole bunch of other, and their blood pressure, and a whole bunch of other readouts that are basically readouts on health. And mm-hmm. parameters should change in a positive direction if you kind of apply these principles. Mm-hmm. Well, great. Well, you've told us um, a little bit about your latest research. Is there anything else you'd like to kind of tell us so we can follow your work? Um, you know, it's, uh, I know you're up to really interesting projects. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with us? Well, I'm, I'm busy teaching most of the time, but this is this uh, nutrition project is is uh, a big one. And uh, so I'm hoping to get that out and published um, this summer sometime. So it should be submitted. Okay. And, you know, when you used to lecture, um, I kind of wish we had like a stick because you used to carry like this big uh, kind of broomstick type thing. And whenever there'd be like a key point, you would tap on the, the board. You remember that? Yeah, I had a big... Uh, it was a, a dowel I used as a pointer, yeah. Yes, that would work good. Every time that thing would tap on the, the wall, I would make sure I would write down what you're saying. <laughs> so um, I don't know if you're still using that, but uh, that was an effective teaching tool. Yeah, we've, we've gone more electronic these days. Uh, okay. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. okay. All right, well, thank you for being on. This was really interesting. I feel like I know much more than I did when we started the conversation. So thank you. It's, uh, these are all really, um, these are really, these ideas are really within reach um, as far as any provider or patient, um, you know, this is something that could, could really make a difference. And so thank you for your time. All right. Well, thanks for talking to me. It's good talking okay. to you again.
Okay, thank you. Thanks for tuning into the episode, everybody. That was really enjoyable for me to speak to Dr. Jeffrey Novak. I hope that you enjoyed it. Um, Some key takeaways from this is there are many health reasons to consider autophagy. Just from a longevity standpoint, um, I think it's probably most ready. Um, In the disease state, we're still working on learning on how to use it um, from a standpoint of how much autophagy to push versus how little. And I think one of the things that was really helpful from this episode is to understand that from an inflammation standpoint, we need to be thinking about inflammation outside the cell and inflammation inside the cell. This was eye-opening for me because we hear all the time that inflammation disrupts so many processes in the body. But if we don't have strategies to consider how to reduce inflammation outside of the cell, and as well as inside the cell, then we might be missing the boat. So one of the things he mentioned is that food in its whole form may be able to provide phytonutrients that can trigger changes within a cell, but also they may have properties that control inflammation outside of the cell. So in a whole food structure, we probably are doing our body the best. So it's important to learn with, you know, to understand and utilize nutrient phytochemicals such as quercetin and other nutrients that we commonly prescribe. However, important to realize that without a healthy diet that's rich in whole foods, then we might be missing some of the anti-inflammatory components that would have been provided from the food. Supplementation alone is probably not enough to counter disease processes. So that was one of my main takeaways from today. I hope you are enjoying the episodes. Please tune in next time to the One Thing Podcast.